the Irish Times Inside Business podcast in association with Davy. It's amazing what you discover when you really listen. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'm looking at digital banking and plans by four Irish banks to take the fight to Revolut. In the second part of the show, Laura Slattery of the Irish Times tells me about how linear television made a comeback in 2020. But I'm going to start with digital banking. It emerged this week that four of our leading banks, AIB, Bank of Ireland, KBC and Permanent TSB, have applied to the Competition Authority for the green light to set up a joint digital payment service. They see this as a way to counter the rise of new fintech rivals such as Revolut, which claims to have secured 1.2 million Irish customers since 2019. Joining me on the line to explain the significance of this are Joe Brennan, markets correspondent of the Irish Times, and Jesus Enoma, an associate director with Grant Thornton's financial services practice. Now, Joe Brennan, you might just explain to us the reasons why AIB, Bank of Ireland, Permanent TSB and KBC Bank Ireland have come together to form this joint venture. We pitched it as a means by them to take on the likes of Revolut and other new fintech players in the marketplace. What are the banks saying? Yeah, look, the banks aren't really commenting um, at the moment, given that it's all kind of basically being coordinated by the banking industry group, uh, BPFI. But this has been in train for the last few years. And I suppose there had been an expectation that the banks wouldn't necessarily have to go down this route, given that there already is a, an instant payment system in, in Europe called SEPA uh, Instant. And we have certain banks across Europe already plugged into that. And there had been you know, an expectation that the Irish banks would be able to plug into that in, in time itself. But it seems that the technology is not there for all of the banks to, to plug into this instant payment system at the same time. And there's a need to kind of maybe take action now rather than wait for all the banks to have their technology up to speed. Because you need to have, if I'm a customer of AIB and you're a customer of Bank of Ireland, you need both banks to be able to speak into the same system to actually allow for an instant payment if you're going from one bank to the other. So the banks clearly have seen what's happening with with Revolut and and to a lesser extent with uh, N26. Revolut has, what, uh, 1.2 million customers uh, built up over, you know, a a very few years. Um, People attracted by just the speed at which they can actually carry out transactions. Also attracted initially by the fact that there was zero cost in terms of uh, foreign exchange um, transactions. Obviously, they've been bringing down the threshold for that. So we're getting, we have charged on that front. But the banks have been kind of concerned that even though payments is basically a lost leader for the banks, they're concerned that over time, if the likes of Revolut, as they expect, get a banking license and, and move more into that space, that they, you lose a customer to them and you lose them for life. You lose the possibility of, of selling them that mortgage or more to the point later on of selling them a, a, a savings product or a pensions product or a life product. So you're losing that kind of customer engagement. So you can see why the banks are looking to move at this point. So how will this operate? How will Syntech Payments operate? And why are the likes of Ulster Bank not part of it? Yeah, look, the, the details aren't really out there yet. We understand, we reported this morning that they're lining up a, an Italian uh, fintech company, SIA, SIA. It is basically backed by an Italian uh, state fund, as it were. They have kind of form in this space. They set up a fairly successful Jiffy um, uh, instant payment system in the Italian system. They're somewhat associated with a, uh, with a Swedish system, Swish as well. So... 
rather than the banks starting from scratch. I mean, the banks have been putting hundreds of millions into their own IT systems over the last number of years. Rather than actually coming up and, and trying to reinvent the wheel, it would appear that they're going to use the, the SIA system and it'll be based on some sort of royalty basis. Um, Ulster Bank were part, we understand, Ulster Bank were part of the initial conversations. They seem to have backed out in the last 12 months or so we're told that it's not related to the, the review that's been carried out by Ulster Bank's uh, parent, NatWest, into the future of Ulster Bank. And Ulster Bank are saying officially that they, while they're not founding members, they, that they plan to join at some stage in the future. I suppose the plan is there um, because that's the strategy. Um, it all depends on what uh, NatWest decide at the end of the day. Um, the strategy is to, 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 to join at this stage. But if, if NatWest decide that Ulster Bank is to be wound down, as we know, is under active consideration, obviously things will change there. But it is interesting that Ulster Bank um, did not decide uh, as the only one of the five retail players in the Irish market at the moment not to join as a founding member. Jesus Sonoma, you're an associate director with Grant Thornton and you specialize in financial services and fintech in particular. Maybe you can just uh, set the scene for us about how the landscape has changed over the past, um, let's say, five years, six years, whatever it might be, and how Revolut and others, N26 uh, that Joe mentioned, and probably others as well, how they've turned the market upside down. You're right. This didn't happen overnight. They started uh, really in 2009, I have to say, even like with the first real challenger bank, Neo Bank, called Fidor in Germany. They started building a platform which was very much driven by the community. And then, of course, uh, you know, at European level, this is, was taken notice and they put platforms in, in place from regulatory perspective and structure to really enable and catalyze this movement. So it initially started with GDPR. That was the first regulation that came at EU level. And then it moved to a PST to payment service director, the second one, which we're talking right now, where it creates the infrastructure we call open banking. A part of open banking is it will be instant payments. Uh, and that really was implemented. It came into force in 2019. What happened was Revolut reformed in 2015. They said, okay, there is regulatory movement, but also there's a consumer experience movement. So consumers were seeking higher, uh, they had higher expectations for their financial services providers. They wanted the one-click buy, and also they wanted to be empowered, they wanted to be more social. So Revolut saw this as an opportunity really to come in and transform the payment experience. Initially started with FX, as Joe mentioned, but they already built other financial products uh, around savings and, and investments into the platform itself. I think Revolut was a catalyst that allowed all the ones like N26, uh, but now if you're looking at tracking globally, the neobanks and the challenger banks, they're over 50. Right, okay. David Duffy, who's the former AIB chief executive, he's now in charge of Virgin Money in the UK. He used to say, and this has gone back some years, that um, AIB's future competition wouldn't be the likes of Bank of Ireland or Ulster Bank necessarily, but would be uh, Google and Facebook and social media companies that have a lot of uh, transactions with people or, or can see transactions at least going through um, involving the millions, billions of customers that they have uh, worldwide. Um, I'm just wondering what role, if any, um, they might have to play in the future of financial services going forward. It started really with the movement of open banking, but we talked about it in terms of open finance now, which will bring other players, as you said, by well, Kira, into the fore. They could be in retail, they could be in mobility, they could be in telcos, and they will offer financial services products going forward, uh, which is, is quite interesting. 
So what PSD2 does, um, it creates uh, two types of licenses, AISPs and PISPs. So all the providers that want to actually integrate your information and act on information in your bank, now banks have to enable other providers with those authorizations to uh, offer services to their customers. And also PISPs, if you want to actually act on that information in terms of payments, you would need to that specific license. So the likes of Virgin Money and others uh, will come into the particular ecosystem, as we call it, of financial services. And you'll be looking at how do we provide differentiated services and products based on the data insights that we gather from our customers. So this concept of one-stop shop, which we see the likes of Amazon doing and, and the Googles and the Facebooks, we call it the gaffers of the world, they will uh, be more data-driven. So the likes of Revels, if you even if you look at the app and the system, the neo banks, they act a lot on insights on their data and the consumers. So that they try to understand their lifestyle, and you can tell a lot about someone's lifestyle through their banking information. So if I, if I know I have a subscription for Netflix, for example, subscription for the gym, uh, you know I eat these type of restaurants. Now I'd be able to personalize my experience and services to that particular customer. This is a, a big. I think it's going to be, uh, we're going to move into hyper-personalization. This is going to be very interesting for actual consumer itself. Like so far, Joe as well mentioned, when we really move into pension, I think it's an opportunity to reinvent uh, the experiences even on those areas and uh, in funds and asset management. Uh, and this is only the catalyst, this payments infrastructure. And Jesus, we know about Revolution. Uh, you mentioned Forex and um, obviously you can make payments, you can buy things over the internet using uh, Revolut and probably others, and it's uh, pretty simple and straightforward. But just wondering, uh, if we look out five or 10 years, let's say they have a small product portfolio compared to the Main Street, uh, Main Street banks, um, what are we likely to see from Revolut over the next uh, five or 10 years? How might it change in terms of their product offering? And how regulated are they compared to, let's say, an AIB or a Bank of Ireland? That's a very good point, Kieran. when you talk about the regulation, because I think that's the advantage that the bank have. And coming with this uh, project, I think there's a massive advantage because they already regulated these banks. They have uh, several licenses to offer several products. Uh, they already have built a relationship with uh, the central bank as well. Uh, and they know how to act in a regulatory environment, which is incredibly important. And then also they have uh, a good market share. With these banks, they will cover over 90% of the market in Ireland uh, with this consortium. And then one of the things the banks as well have is a very, very robust services when it comes to their the legal compliance and risk management processes, which, again, if they pull it all together with this project, will provide the best value. If you're looking at uh, the new players, normally they start with the e-money license, uh, which is the lighter regulated of the bank. Uh, and then, because they, likes of Revolut and these new banks, how they, they perceive the market is we create a minimum viable product. Where does it, we see a pain point and an opportunity where you can offer a differentiated experience to uh, a customer? So Revolut started with foreign exchange and now they create the good base based on the foreign exchange. Because it was common sense, the customer will look at the app, they get better rates, a lower cost experience, onboarding experience is, uh, is, is, is differentiated, is amazing. So uh, the customer quickly on boards and start using their service. But these banks have a suite of services, which uh, that's where you will go in the future, where the consumer will want a suite of services under one roof. So I want to, you know, do my foreign exchange with Revolut. At the same time, I want to do my savings with Revolut or another challenger bank. 
I want to do my pensions and I, and I want to, uh, eat, who knows, do other, other services, uh, which could be outside. Uh, maybe I want to get a doctor advice, you know, through my bank, click on, uh, click on the bank and the bank will actually have a partnership with the, with the doctor, right? Which you could link me into which other people are doing. The bank could have some ecosystem of financial care, care for my child, which, uh, you know, could start with a, a mobile app for the, for the child, but then it could offer other child care services as well. So you can see how this can create a very holistic experience around the transactions that are in your bank. Uh, but this is only the start. I think Revolut will have challenges like editing because they, they, they have to show profitability. This uh, project, Pegasus, is a not-for-profit, so they won't have the challenges of uh, you know, showcasing profitability. They will have other challenges, which will be around uh, creating agility on the future releases, which Revolut does create a lot of features and releases them and test them quite frequently. They will have challenges in keeping up with consumer demands, uh, which, which, which is evolving at a rapid pace, particularly now with COVID accelerated that need for curated personalized experience that you're going to leave with your end customer. And of course, the advances in technology, which is, uh, you know, is key, as Joe mentioned. This is not, uh, it didn't happen overnight. This infrastructure is it, there for a while. We talked about separate instant payments, uh, but the technology behind it has been tested and, um, and proven for a while. It's just a, a case of adopting that technology, keeping abreast with that technology, and being able to deliver differentiated products and services to the end customer. Joe, the banks have been furiously investing in their technology over the last number of years, and Bank of Ireland has a very extensive project underway at the minute. How geared up are they for a digital future at this point? Yeah, look at Bank of Ireland, I think was probably the last in terms of actually, you know, developing a proper of the retail banks or developing a proper uh, fit for purpose uh, mobile app uh, that came out in the middle of last year, first on Android and then Apple. Um, it took longer than expected. And uh, Bank of Ireland has been has a, a multi-year program of investing 1.15 billion into that. One of the kind of fairly clear kind of consumer facing parts of that was the app uh, and the, there was a delay in, in that but I think it is interesting that the banks you know despite they're all singing all dancing apps that they have at the moment they don't have the, the capability as an industry to kind of plug into SEPA Instant which would probably negate the need to actually go down the route of setting up uh, Cinch Payments this, uh, this joint venture. Um, I think it's interesting the fact that the um, that uh, they've decided to go down the route of not just having the, the the four founding banks, but also leaving it open to other lenders, and particularly credit unions and on post, and that may help them to get around the whole uh, CCPC, the Competition Authority, because it has been notified of this and its investigation into this, and it may negate the need for going into a full phase. Um, a second phase inquiry or investigation into the, the joint venture. And in terms of, you know, the life journey um, that, that we all go on, if you want to get a mortgage, if you want to buy a property um, at the moment in Ireland, your choices are pretty limited, aren't they? I mean, you only have a handful of banks, maybe one or two non-bank lenders, but you certainly can't get one from Revolut. And Revolut, uh, as you mentioned earlier, can't sort out your, your pension or life um, policies either. Yeah, and I suppose the banks fear it's only a matter of time. And I think it's inevitable. Um, you have the likes of Revolut, Monzo and, and, and 26. They, they haven't reached uh, a full year. They, they have on occasion, some of them reached 
um, month-on-month profitability, or uh, but they haven't reached annual profitability at this stage. Um, they have to monetize the number of customers they have, and it's only a matter of time before they start introducing the likes of more convoluted credit um, options for people, including um, including long-term mortgages. And the fear is from the Irish banks or from banks in general is that this will actually move towards these fintech types if they actually uh, manage to hold on to these customers and, and they're lost to the banks themselves. I mean, typically, the if you are banked by a certain bank in Ireland, if your family is banked by a certain bank of Ireland, very few people actually move off that bank. They start off the parents with a the bank, they join the bank themselves, and they stay with the bank throughout life. And, and that's also a problem in the, in, the, in the mortgage switcher market. Yeah, sure. Has the Central Bank of Ireland got any view on this uh, proposed joint venture? It's said that the Central Bank is favourably disposed to it, given that, I mean, the, the whole idea, the whole European uh, the ECB drive and the European Commission drive to try and, you know, facilitate the, the, the instant uh, movement of, of, of capital. That's one of the kind of, uh, one of the, the one of the things that, that the, the ECB is really pushing and the Central Bank would be very much in, in favour of that as well. Is this going to hasten the end of the traditional bank branch? Yeah, look, we've seen COVID. Um, we've seen a massive shift overnight by people who might not ordinarily have, uh, in their lifetime, have been kind of inclined to use online payments or cashless payments being forced due to COVID. And that's just accelerated that. I think it's inevitable or inexorable that uh, we'll see um, as, as banks, they face certain cost pressures, they're only growing, that we'll see more. We've seen waves of this in the past, uh, particularly after the, uh, after the financial crisis, it's inevitable we'll see another wave of, of branch closures over the coming years as well. Some banks, like Bank of Ireland, have, you know, haven't done to the extent of others. Um, they see having a large branch network as being a differentiator, as being the first. You may not be going to the bank to do simple transactions, but for life decisions and for big decisions, going to the bank is, is, is what you do. He's just, uh, the pandemic has probably accelerated the move towards a cashless society. Uh, Joe mentioned um, how a lot of transactions now are cashless and uh, that's the way it's just had to be over the past uh, 10 months or so. That obviously plays into the bailiwick, I guess, of the likes of Revolut because they don't want to handle cash. In fact, the banks probably don't even want to handle much cash these days. But um, when, when, do we, uh, when do you think we might get to this uh, nirvana of a cashless uh, society? And how is it going to evolve? I think that the, the pandemic really accelerated the, the movement into a cashless society. Even the contactless, we moved to, to from 30 to 50 euros overnight. There are some jurisdictions uh, different in, in America. They're trying to move it to $100. And I'll see that maybe probably potentially as well in the future over the next five years to, you know, in, in the European region in Ireland to move that to 100 euros. You never know. But uh, I think this has been really, really good in a way because enabled banks to really look at their customers' journeys and digital journeys and say, how can we be better? How can we deliver these services now uh, to the customer in this new way? And it starts with cash. Everything in financial services starts with cash. But they also start to look at, okay, how do I really offer better services to my customer? And, and I understand my customer through a 360-degree level. Uh, but lots of revenues, when you have a digital experience, you can understand your customer at a deeper level because everything is recorded and then you can personalize the services. And the data point is very interesting because the challenge with these banks have a present is that due to the system has been built over decades, you know, the, the information around their customer is more divided, is more segregated. So uh, the likes of Revolut, where they have all the information in one place, they're able to uh, provide better advice. And that's why I want to circle back on that, that casual society 
really uh, will be driven still by very, very good customer protection uh, rules in place, right? So the ability to provide advice, good financial boss advice is key. And the challenge of banks will have to keep that in mind because at the end of the day, we are providing uh, financial services products to uh, the end users, the, the, the customers, and, and that will play a part. So they will probably revisit models like subscription models, which uh, the clients as well are demanding, whereby uh, the costs will be lower, uh, the fees as well will be lower, but the advice will have to be there. We will reach that environment of a full cash flow society, full no interaction with our financial services advisor. I think that will take over a decade, really, for us to, to, to reach that. It won't be ended another five in, in, a, in a short period of time, because as we, even though we're discussing here, we only discuss it instant payments. All right, sounds like still a road to travel on the cashless um, side of things. Joe, are, are you a Revolut user yourself or N26 or any of those? Neither nor. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. Come on. That's just what uh, the banks would like to hear. Um, and a final word to you: Will this joint venture be approved? And what happens uh, if it's turned down? I think the fact that they've, you know, it's an open forum, so uh, they are allowing the the the, the credit unions on post, other banks, uh, other fintechs to join, uh, improves dramatically the, the 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 possibility of this being approved uh, and potentially not even having to go to a phase uh, phase two investigation. Okay, all right, we'll leave it there. Um, Joe Brennan and Jesus Sinoma, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. When I return, I'll be talking to Laura Slattery about the growth of television viewing last year. Back in a few moments. At Davy, the best conversations are always more than one way. We know it's even more important to listen than it is to talk. It's how we get to know our clients personally. By listening to you carefully and understanding what's important to your life, your family, and your future. Then we can talk about a financial life plan that will suit you best. Davy, It's not just business, it's personal. Janie Davy, trading as Davy, is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. We take our responsibilities personally. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now, earlier in the week, Irish television viewership numbers for last year were released, and they showed an increase in the amount of time people spent watching traditional linear TV, partly driven, obviously, by COVID-19 lockdown restrictions. Laura Slattery of the Irish Times now joins me by phone to go through the numbers. Now, Laura Slattery of the Irish Times, thank you for joining us. Uh, I suppose the demise of linear television has been much speculated upon in recent years, but it had a good pandemic. It bounced back somewhat last year, uh, with viewership in Ireland at least up, 2%. 2%. Tell us about that. Yes. I mean, the television industry has always um, taken the view that the rumours of, of linear TV's death are much exaggerated. Um, but last year, we definitely saw um, some hard numbers. It's actually It actually went up. Um, now, in real terms, maybe not by a huge amount, by 2%, but it's a really huge achievement that in the age of uh, streamers like Netflix, Prime Video, so many other competitors, the Irish people are watching an average of two hours and 58 minutes of linear television every day. And that figure includes people who uh, might watch something back on a, on a, a time shift basis, but it doesn't actually include things that they watch on a player uh, even the RTE player, the Virgin Media player. The popularity of Irish content from Irish broadcasters, I think, is, has been laid bare, um, especially, as you say, in a year where everybody was stuck at home. 
Yeah, now obviously uh, we did have lockdown and that contributed to it massively, I'm sure. What about the streamers? Do we know how, how they uh, fared last year? Presumably they must have been up in terms of, you know, the number of hours that people were consuming of their services, movies and what have you. Yeah, so I mean, we don't have any um, isolated figures for the Irish market and even uh, the global figures that they put out. It's very hard to compare like with like. Um, certainly we saw last year um, from, from Netflix, um, there was a huge uh, surge in their number of uh, subscribers that, that they added, especially in the second quarter and a little bit in the third quarter, I think, as well. And they themselves were saying this is people responding to lockdowns across the world and signing up now, whereas... Uh, you know, in a normal world, shall we say, they might have waited a bit longer. So I think um, they are anticipating maybe that that growth isn't going to last. And what they're watching, I mean, it's, it's it, well, they, when they sign on, I think um, we kind of, you know, they put out figures every now and again, but it's hard to compare like with like, as I say, with the TV ratings. But we can see anecdotally that there's a lot of escapist uh, fair. Um, Tiger King was one of the early hits of the lockdown. I think later on in the year, um, the Queen's Gambit, which was just a really kind of uplifting, <laughs> heartwarming tale, really, um, it was a huge hit for them globally and, and perhaps un- unexpectedly. Um, so they have certainly had a great year. Netflix and 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 Disney Plus, of course, launched last year and and just you know absolutely rocketed. I think they're way past eighty million subscribers um, worldwide now. Uh, for that to to grow so fast, I think uh, can only be. Um, uh, can only have been helped by the pandemic. I mean, they have some great uh, properties, some great uh, Marvel and, and Star Wars and the rest of it, but it's definitely a little bit of um, there being a little, little or no other choice uh, for many uh, households uh, what they, they, they did with their time last year. Now, in terms of the most watched programmes, the Late Late Toy Show uh, topping the rankings again and Leo's speech to the nation announcing lockdown one also featuring very high up. Yeah, I mean, what we saw last year was, okay, the, the Late Late Toy Show. I mean, it was a real kind of uh, heartwarming moment. Everybody watching, um, you know, what, what RTE were, were able to put on under the circumstances and the, the kids were centre stage. And it's a kind of a, a, a national um, event, really. And it, it always tops the um, annual uh, list of programmes, certainly throughout this century. Um, but uh, beyond that, it's really, it was completely dominated by news and current affairs in a way that it just isn't normally the, the, the most watched programmes. And in fact, if you, if you want to think about the, the, the live audience on, on actual TV as it happened, um, more people were watching um, Leo Varadkar's um, ministerial broadcast, his emergency, emergency address on, on St. Patrick's Day, um, especially if you add in the fact that it was another... A uh, portion of viewers watching that on um, Virgin uh, Media Television and indeed on, on RTE News now. But um, yeah, the Late Late Show, uh, Toy Show obviously has an, an, a huge audience on the player as well. So it's still uh, probably out there in front overall. But uh, we have, you know, Leo's speech, the reach of that would have been absolutely huge. You know, the, the two, those two programmes, in fact, probably would have been the most watched of this of this century. But behind that, then we had the nine o'clock news was the third most watched program of the year. And I was looking back at last year and it would have been 21st. So, you know, it would say almost um, double, almost double the audience watched the nine o'clock news that followed Leo's speech on Patrick's Day than say compared to the people who watched um, the news um, on the day of Storm Ophelia back in 2018, which would have been another huge event. 
Uh, and then just through the list, you know, you actually have to go all the way down to um, number 13 in the list before you get onto the general election. Um, but there was a several, several, several um, news programmes ahead of that. And the Late Late Show itself presented by Miriam O'Callaghan on the week that uh, Ryan Tuberty was ill with COVID-19. And um, the, the big loser here was was sport. Yeah, because sport would normally feature very highly, wouldn't it? Particularly the All-Ireland uh, finals, uh, big Ireland soccer matches, Six Nations rugby. All of that was disrupted last year and it had a big impact uh, in terms of numbers. Although I think the All-Ireland finals did perform pretty well, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, like last year and year before, or, or I should say, sorry, 2019 and 2018, you know, they would have um, had, you know, a good at least half, say, the top 10 spots and a lot of the two, three, four, five spots behind the toy show. But in 2020, the highest sport event that the most watched was the uh, Dublin Mayo uh, Ireland uh, football final. Um, not in its usual space in the calendar, but still got a, an audience of, of 880,000 about in December, in fact. And then the uh, Six Nations uh, France fixture in October, again, out of its normal position in the sporting calendar, that was you know close behind 850,000. So they were both in the top 10. And indeed, the hurling final was in the 10th spot with about 700,000 between Limerick and, and Waterford. That's a weak showing for sport. And the reasons, of course, are obvious. Things were on in the wrong time of the year. Euro uh, 2020 and the Olympics uh, weren't um, a feature at all. And I think this year we'll probably bounce back a little bit, assuming those events go ahead and assuming everything does go ahead. I expect that sport will sort of take its rightful place, I suppose, in, in the upper echelons of this chart and that the interest in news, uh, that that, that might be subject to a little bit of fatigue. Now you mentioned a lot of problems that aired there on RTE and Virgin Media. What about TG Carr? How did they get on in lockdown? Yeah, I mean, they wouldn't feature in the sort of most watched programs of the years, but they had a good 2020 as well. I mean, as you, you know, as as we've discussed, people with people being stuck at home, they are exploring all of their entertainment options and TG Cahar is in there as well. Interesting, actually, they had their best Christmas in in, in many a year um, at this Christmas and they uh, pulled in a huge audience for a concert um, of the Dubliners that was kind of lost for a bit. Uh, eight years, I think, and and uh, was recovered and and aired on Christmas Day, and that was a really popular um, program for them. And I think it reflects as well the fact that there's been a far more music uh, programming on television as a whole over the last few months, with with no live music scene to speak of. Um, the only way people can connect with uh, live music now is through uh, broadcasting, TV, and 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 radio. And um, it, there's a kind of an appetite for that kind of content where it's entertainment, it's escapist, but it makes people feel, you know, all those sort of things. It, it, there's a kind of uh, a way of connecting with um, emotions that doesn't necessarily involve um, feeling uh, depressed, as you might uh, do if you're watching the nine o'clock or the six o'clock news. Yeah, sure. Jules Holland's uh, Hoot and Nanny uh, was very entertaining, I thought, on um New Year's Eve and they were very innovative in that they um, you know they edited in clips from previous years uh, for bands which they had to do obviously because um, they, they only had um, so many in studio uh, yeah. Reeling in the Years uh, also proved to be quite popular I mean that's been a staple I suppose of Irish TV over the last number of years but people perhaps uh, longing for times past in the lockdown <laughs> found Reeling in the Years even, even more appealing 
Yes, I mean this is this is interesting in two ways. In 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 one sense, as you say, it's the, the nostalgia uh, factor. Reeling in the years has not only you know were many people alive during the years being reeled in, but they have been repeated so many times um, over the last twenty years. The same episodes that it's kind of incredible that it gets such a huge audience. Uh, but it was yeah, it was there in the fourteenth the most uh, popular uh, program of the year uh, last year was reeling in the years on. Um, March 17th, so after the six o'clock news on, on March 17th, that, that was an absolutely huge St. Patrick's Day for uh, television viewing. It was a day of, I think everyone was feeling incredibly down. Um, uh, but uh, I looked back and the year that they were showing that year was 1970. So, uh, you know, I think basically any year they were showing would have been relatively uneventful news-wise compared to 2020. But 1970 was the one that was watched... The, that was watched by um, 650,000 people. <laughs> so uh, the, the reason, the other reason I say that's interesting is because, you know, we hear about on demand um, a lot and, and, you know, younger people in particular, you know, they, they, they're they not really tied to the, the linear schedule as much, if at all, um, compared to generations past. They just go in and press play on whatever they want. But you can see there that that's benefit from what the industry calls an inheritance from the news. People were watching the news and then they just left it on and watched Reeling in the years 1970. Well, can I just say, obviously, the year of my birth, it was a great year. Um, so I can understand why so many people uh, Yeah, so not relatively in. uneventful at all. Sorry, I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell us about your own lockdown, Laura. Uh, was it TV or streaming for you? Probably both. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm still a, a fan of a lot of... Uh, uh, linear TV's uh, best efforts. Um, I enjoyed uh, the BBC's uh, comedy Staged, which was kind of uh, filmed over a, a Zoom-like um, a, a, a video conference with uh, David Tennant and Michael Sheen playing um, exaggerated um, versions of themselves. Um, but I've also, you know, enjoyed things like uh, Netflix's uh, Bridgerton, which was, has been a huge hit. Uh, just over the Christmas period, and it couldn't be fluffier. And I think I think that's what we're going to see. We're going to see more escapist uh, content um, in 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 the months to come. Um, I probably also watched back things um, that I've already seen. You know, I've done my Mad Men rewatch. I did a Gossip Girl rewatch. There's a little bit of um, if you're you know having trouble um, concentrating <laughs> or attention span is is a, an issue. Then there's something very comforting about rewatching uh, uh, things where you you basically already know the story and you're not going to be um, alarmed or feel any sense of real tension whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. Now, three hours on average, people watching TV is that healthy? Um, well, I would always defend television and say um, <laughs> uh, it can be very educational. It's an art form. Uh, you know, in a year where a lot of, of the cultural scene uh, has struggled to has struggled to, you know, we've no, had, had no live performance, as I said, no theatre, no nightclubs. I would always say that, um, you know, people should, uh, it, 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 it should they, they can keep in touch, they can keep informed, watch the news, um, enjoy music, enjoy drama. I, I don't think, I don't think, I don't see anything unhealthy with it, of course, if you, you know, everybody needs to <laughs> exercise and all the rest of it. But um, yeah, I think I think it's been it's it has been a it's been a great great showcase in a way for for what in home entertainment can do. And the only the real uh, issue, I suppose, I suppose, is that some 
uh, or indeed many productions had to uh, pause for many months of last year because they couldn't continue on, uh, as the pandemic was escalating. Although, you know, the Irish industry and, and industries elsewhere then did come up with a set of uh, protocols that have largely been successful and they were able to um, film again in the autumn. Though I know in Los Angeles, for example, where many of the US uh, programmes, including many of the streamers, uh, big uh, hits uh, are filming there once again subject to some delays at the moment because of the um the rates of covid-19 in 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 the LA area. Um so that would be the main um uh, downside to 2024 that industry but you know 2 hours 58 minutes I mean that's that's an average as I say that 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 that, that that's going to be some people have tv on in the background all day and some people you know put it on for half an hour if if, if anything. And um, yeah, so it, it's based, those figures are based on a panel of TV homes as well. So um, that's, you know, it's not it's perhaps, you know, it'd be interesting if there was another panel of TV homes, it'd be interesting to see uh, what that figure would be. But um, it certainly points to a healthy picture and um, you would hope that uh, advertisers will return to the market a little bit more. They did start to creep back in towards the end of 2020, but uh, Irish broadcasters uh, need that uh, support in, in in going forward with all, with all the competition that, that they face. Yeah, sure. I was going to ask you finally uh, just about the outlook for 2021. What's it, what's it looking like? Yeah, I mean, I just think it, it's very it's a very nervous, difficult um, place to be at the moment for um for a broadcaster that's only operating in one country, you know, whether you're, uh, you know, uh, even even if you're the BBC, for example, um, that, you know, they're not reliant on the um, advertising market. Um, it's 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 difficult because, you know, Netflix the other day announced that they, they're going to have 70 films this year. I think at least 70. So at least one a week. Um, that's obviously, you know, bad news for cinemas on the one hand, um, that can't even open, but it's also, you know, if you're sitting down on a, a weekend night and your choice is a new, a much hyped Netflix film that a lot of people are saying is good, or, um, maybe looking at something that isn't maybe totally brand new on the, um, on a linear channel, then, you know, that, that audience is going to soften a, a little bit. Um, so there will be some great content coming up. Virgin Media, uh, for example, they've been uh, out and about briefing journalists this week on what they've coming up and uh, the information is embargoed. But the highlight is probably something that they've already announced, which is the documentary Finding Jack Charlton, which they commissioned with the BBC. And that's bound to be a very emotional uh, watch. I mean, it has been available on some on-demand platforms on a paid-for basis uh, late last year. But... Um, I think that that'll get people around the television again. Yeah, well, as somebody who lived through the Jack Charlton years and uh, enjoyed them for the most part, that's definitely something to look forward to. Laura Slattery, thank you for joining Inside Business. Thanks. OK, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Joe Brennan, Hizu Sonoma and Laura Slattery for joining me on the show. Thanks also to our sponsor, Davy Group, for its continued support. Uh, Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon on sound. Remember, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today. Email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care and stay safe.